0: Uh, it's my privilege this morning not only to talk uh, from the Scriptures, but to talk about them. Uh, we always talk from the Scriptures here. The basis of our ministry is exposition of, of Scripture. Hopefully, all we, uh, all we want to do here on Sunday morning, or try to do, or do, is say again what, what the apostles and prophets have, have already said. That's what uh, Bible study is, essentially. But uh, this morning, it's my happy task to talk about the scriptures themselves and how we receive them. Uh, the first part of the message will be largely apologetic and historical, talking about uh, the process of, of inspiration of scripture and how we receive the scriptures in the second half. For the second half, I want to go to 2 Timothy and, and uh, look at Paul's statement about the purpose for giving us the scriptures uh, this is uh, a part of our present series reviewing our new doctrinal statement. The uh, fourth paragraph of that statement reads we believe in the Old and New Testaments inerrant as originally given that is without uh, without error in the original uh, writings the of the writings of the of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, and we believe that the Old and New Testaments, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. Um, If you were given a Bible for the first time and asked to uh, give your impressions, you would probably come up with something like this. The first thing you would say is, my, it's... uh, It certainly is a big book. It has about 1,600 pages, at least most translations have about that many pages, about the length of the average Russian novel. Um, And then on a closer look, you might observe that, no, it's not one book. It's 66 smaller books. All sorts of uh, literature, history, something that looks like legal literature, psalms, a book of Proverbs, some letters, uh, some book at the end that I can't quite figure out with uh, strange creatures appearing uh, throughout, Uh, written by a lot of different people. It all seems to be uh, about God and particularly about the the manner in which God worked through one one set of people, the Jews, and about one Jew in particular, uh, the man that's called Jesus. And then if you turn to the title page, you'd see that the title of that book is the Holy Bible. Now, that's enough to scare a lot of people right there. Holy Bible. What in the world does that mean? Well, essentially, the title means a a unique or a special book, one of a kind. Uh, Our word Bible simply comes from an old Greek or probably an older Phoenician word for book, Biblia. Is the is the Greek word? If you you may have heard of the ancient Phoenician city Byblos. The Greeks called that city Byblos because their major export was paper or books. So they were called uh, Book City, in essence, Byblos. So uh, our our title Bible simply means book. It's nothing to be afraid of. We've all picked up books and read them. The Bible just means book. That's all. Holy is another word. That's that's another term that's often misunderstood. We think of uh, wizened uh, old prophets and church deacons that used to scare us half to death. But uh, holy merely means set apart, uh, set apart from secular things, different in that sense, unique. So putting the two terms together, what you have is a unique book, one of a kind. There's only one like it in the world the Holy Bible. Now, I want to say that the uniqueness of the Bible lies not in the words that are used. You'll find all the words that are found in the Old and New Testaments in any good English dictionary, nor is there some special meaning attached to the words they are defined in conventional conventional ways, nor is the uh, specialness of the Bible discovered by reading it upside down or diagonally across the page or skipping every other word. Now, you read it just like you read the Idaho Statesman or any other piece of of literature. You read the words, and you give them their conventional meanings. And you employ the same kind of grammar and syntax that we use in communicating between one another. So the uniqueness of the Bible has nothing to do with the words or the way they're used. The uniqueness of the Bible lies in the fact that it is a book about God by God himself. Now, there are a lot of books about God. Of the making of books about whatever gods may be, there is no end. But, uh, but this is a special book because this is a book about God written by God, using human instrumentality in some mysterious way that we is difficult to explain. But they work, God worked through the personalities of the authors of Scripture, uh, culling through their vocabularies using their normal terminology but choosing the precise words that God wanted to choose in order to convey a particular idea. And we call that that idea inspiration. Paul put it this way in in 2 Timothy 3, the passage I read a moment ago. All scripture, he says, is inspired by God. By scripture, he meant uh, the Bible. It's inspired. Now, the word that we translate inspired is a word that Paul made up. It's not found anywhere else in the ancient world. It's a coined word. Paul apparently just stuck together two words. The two words, God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. The emphasis is not so much on the process as it is on the author. Scripture came to us from God. God breathed out the words. That's, that's, he is the author and the origin of the word. of. That's why we call this the word of God. Uh, Peter puts it another way in his epistle, his second epistle. He says that, that God uh, worked through holy men; that the Spirit of God bore holy men along. It's a reference to the prophets; they were blown along like a, a, a sailboat is blown along by the wind. Again, using their unique characteristics and their personality, but what ye, what they wrote was the word of God. And so as you read through the Bible, you find the prophets talking about it in a very self-conscious, very self-assertive way. The prophets would say things like, what what I say to you is what God says to you. They don't make any bones about the fact that their words, what they they said and what they wrote, were God's words. Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, with reference to the resurrection, he says, You must know that what I'm saying to you is a command of God. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, when, when you receive my word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God that is at work among you. And we read that and we say, Who is this It's issuing commands and expecting us to obey and, and is so conscious of his authority? He's, he flaunts it. He says, What I say is God's word, and, and you must obey. Who is this? Well, these were the prophets and the apostles who wrote Scripture. Now, the question that, 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 that rose historically and still comes up today is, uh, so what if someone comes to you and says, I'm a prophet? of God, you must listen to me. What I have to say is God's word. What's the test? How do we know? Maybe, maybe they, they should be locked up for their own protection. That's what you normally do to people who say, God spoke to me and, and this is what he said. How do we know? How can we, how can we test their message? Well, there was a way. God gave three tests that could be applied to anyone who came and said they were speaking for God. And those tests are found in Deuteronomy 18. Will you turn back there with me? It's the fifth book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you have a New American Standard, it's on page 285. It's easy to find. Well, I say that seriously because we do have a lot of, of young Christians, new Christians, here, some who are not Christians yet, and they really don't know their way around in the in the Bible. And I'm not trying to poke fun at anybody. I, you know, I'm just trying to make it easy for you to find some of these more obscure books. Verse nine, chapter 18 of Deuteronomy. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. You're going to encounter false prophets and false teachers. There were many of them in those days. And Paul says. You know, Moses says, who's the author of this book, you must learn not to to learn from them. Verse 10, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or anyone who calls up the dead. Whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. He uh, brings together every Hebrew word or every Hebrew expression for the occult that we know of. And he says, don't have anything to do with it. We don't get our information from the stars. We don't get it from uh, spirits of the dead. We don't get it from mediums or spiritists or or things that go a bump in the night. You know, we that's, that's not where we get our information. We've got a better source. Verse 14. Those nations which you shall dis- dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. This is a typical Hebrew way of referring not only to one person, but to a whole class of individuals. A prophet, a a prototypical prophet, representing every prophet who comes through Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And uh, down in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among you, uh, from among their countrymen, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, my words, which he shall speak in my name, uh, I myself will require it of him. And then in verse 21, You may say in your heart, How shall we know? The word which the Lord has not spoken. There will be people who will come and say, we're a prophet of God. How will we know? Moses says, when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Three tests. Three criteria that they were to apply. Someone came, showed up in the town and said, I'm a, I'm a prophet. I have a word from God. Listen to me how do you know number one is he a jew you see that God will raise up one like me from among your countrymen now if you have any question about the meaning of that phrase turn back to chapter 17 where he's talking about the he's describing the law of the king he says in verse 14 when you enter the land which the lord your god gives you and you possess it i'm reading verse 14 of chapter 17. And live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations who who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your own countrymen. You shall set as a king over yourself. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves. So he he defines the word countryman. A prophet had to be a Jew, period. And Paul picks up uh, that idea in Romans 9 when he says uh, it was through the Jews that the oracles of God came. Now that fact and that fact alone disqualifies an awful lot of prophets. They're not Jews. Joseph Smith came from, as I recall, Altamira, uh, New York. Uh, Sun Myung Moon came from Korea. Had to be a Jew. That's number one. Number two, they had to receive direct revelation from God. They didn't get their information by studying the Bible. It it came through direct revelation. And number three, they had to be able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. They could never miss. The question is raised, how shall we know? Well, all right, just listen to their predictions. And if their predictions come true, and if they always come true, and if they never miss, then that's a prophet from God. That's why the prophets gave both short-range and long-range prophecies. Uh, Isaiah, the prophecies that Isaiah gave, were many of, many of them could be tested within his lifetime. The invasion of the, of the Assyrian army, for example, and others. It's true of all the prophets. So if someone shows up in Boise and he is a Jew who is receiving direct revelation and he's predicting the future with absolute accuracy, then we better listen to him. But if he isn't, Moses says, don't be in awe of him. Don't listen to him. Don't be afraid of it. That's not a prophet of God. Now, uh, the, the Jews applied this, these, these tests to any prophets who appeared. And uh, those who passed the tests were accepted as prophets, and, and their writings were preserved. And that's what we have, basically, in the Old Testament. Those are the writings of, of the prophets. They were spoken, and often other people wrote their writings down. Sometimes the prophets themselves wrote But by the time you get to the 5th century B.C., there was a collection of of writings that that they considered their Bible. That was their book, which they divided into three sections. The law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets, which include all of our historical books, the ones that we have in our Bible. The books of uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and all of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, and so forth, those were the prophets. And then there were the writings, which were our Psalms and Proverbs and the book of Ruth, the book of Ecclesiastes, and, and these smaller books that were, didn't quite fit into the historical or the prophetic or legal literature. And by the 5th century, by the time of Ezra, they, they, they recognized this as a, this was their Bible. This was their body of truth. This is what they believed in. This is what they based their life on. And uh, they began to refer to them in the Greek era shortly afterward as He Grafe, the writings. It was a technical term for their their Bible. By the way, Jews even today refer to the Old Testament as the Bible. When I was in school, I was was often in classes with Jewish or Israeli students, and they were highly offended if you refer to that book as the Old Testament. No, it was the Bible. That's their Bible. That was the only Bible that Jesus and the apostles had. He often used that, that phrase, "Hey graffe these scriptures. He said, for example, in, in, uh, in John 10, these scriptures cannot be broken, period. Which leads to the idea that Jesus never argued with, with the Old Testament. He accepted it as his authority. It was the basis of his belief. It was the basis of his uh, personal life. He put himself under the Old Testament scriptures and obeyed them. Never quibbled with them. Never questioned, never challenged them. That was his Bible. Uh, For example, when Jesus was was in the wilderness and he was tempted of Satan, after 40 days of temptation, Satan says, turn these uh, rocks into bread. Jesus quotes a passage from Deuteronomy that most of us never even heard of. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that issues from the mouth of God. He's quoting scripture to himself. He says, no, I'm not going to short-circuit the process. Whatever it is that God wants me to do, I'm going to do that. I'm going to feast on him. I'm going to count on his resources. Put himself under scripture. Satan says, go up to the pinnacle of the temple. Cast yourself off. Forge. Satan can quote scripture, too. He quotes Psalm 91. He says, he will give his angels charge of you. In other words, his angels swoop down, pick you up, carry you up to the temple. He'll take care of you. And Jesus says, it is also written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, he's not saying, Satan, I'm God, don't tempt me. He's saying, I will not tempt the Lord my God. I will not force him into a corner. I won't I won't uh, require that he do something contrary to his will, Asking ask him to act contrary to his character. See, he put himself under the scriptures. Uh, the same thing is true of his, uh, of his argumentation when he was in controversy with the Sadducees and Pharisees. He went back to Scripture. He kept saying, it stands written. It stands written. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they were naturalists. They didn't believe that God could do anything that man couldn't do, basically. And uh, since man can't raise the dead, neither can God. And, and Jesus says, haven't you ever read the Scriptures? How God said in, to Moses... This is in Exodus 3. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he makes this point on the verb tense, or actually in the Hebrew phrase, the lack of any verb at all. There's no verb there. And and the structure of the phrase indicates an an ongoing action. Jesus says, haven't you ever read the Old Testament? In Moses' day, which is 500 years after Abraham's day, God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say, I was. He said, I am. So Abraham must still be alive. What's the matter? Don't you read the scriptures? It says the Sadducees were astonished. The word, uh, it's an idiom. It's uh, very close to our word struck out. They had that feeling that you get when, you know, in the last out of the World Series, when when the bases are loaded and your hero comes up and strikes out, that kind of empty feeling that you get. they thought they had him in a corner, and Jesus just takes some Old Testament scripture and with penetrating insight explains it to them, and they struck out. That's the idea. So he never argued with it. And my point is this. If Jesus accepted the Old Testament as Scripture, so must we. I'm not at liberty to question Jesus' view of the Old Testament. I don't care what the radical critics say of the Old Testament. If Jesus said it was God's word and he obeyed it and he believed it, then I must do so if he's my Lord. The same is true of the apostles. They quote the Old Testament. They never question it. It's the basis of their authority. So that for us as Christians, as far as I'm concerned, settles the issue of the inspiration of the Old Testament. It is inspired because the apostles, the writers of, of the Old Testament, claim that it is. Now, you, you know, it's not, it's not logical to argue that something is inspired simply because it claims to be inspired. That's not good logic. But certainly it's, it would be foolish to argue for the inspiration of Scripture if it didn't claim to be inspired. It does. And for us, it's confirmed because our Lord believed in its inspiration. If he is our Lord, we have to be subject to his teaching on the word as well as his teaching on any other subject. Now, the New Testament is a different question. How do we know the New Testament is inspired? Well, uh, number one, Jesus himself was a prophet. Uh, remember the question that John the Baptist asked him are you the prophet who is to come or should we look for someone else they knew that a prophet was coming a prophet par excellence who who was the Messiah and Jesus was that prophet there are numerous quotations in the New Testament that go back to Deuteronomy 18 and identify Jesus and his ministry with with that passage he fulfilled that passage in every respect He, he, he qualifies because he passes the three tests he was a Jew we received direct revelation. What I have, he says, comes from, from the Father. I don't speak of myself. It comes from him. And he predicted the future with, with absolute accuracy and certainty. He's a prophet. And he passed on that authority to his apostles. Jesus didn't write anything. He only spoke. The only thing he wrote was in the dust of the ground. Uh. But he passed on the authority to write his words to his apostles. Remember the passage we looked at last week in John 16? Where he says, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you apostles into all truth. And uh, he will not speak of himself, but he will he will take the things of the Father and he will give them to you and he will show you things to come. That's their, that's their authority, to write scripture and to predict the future. So that... That authority that Jesus had as a prophet was passed on to the apostles, and they preserved his words and his teachings. People who say to me, and we just had an example of it in the newspaper last Saturday, in, in Bill Edlin's article, that you know Jesus just taught a simple gospel of love, but the apostles garbled the whole thing, and what we have today is some distortion of Jesus' teaching. Quite frankly, uh, are not thinking logically. Because Jesus never wrote a thing. We have no knowledge of what Jesus said apart from what the apostles told us he said. Everything we have comes from them. So if they're wrong, how do we know what Jesus said? They, they, they remembered supernaturally what he said. And they incorporated that in their gospels and in the, in the epistles, the letters. And uh, the apostles themselves fulfilled the tests of a prophet. They were Jews who, were, who had received revelation, and they were predicting the future. And as their writings began to circulate, the church recognized that they had unique authority. Jesus had said so. They said so. And they, they passed all of the tests that the Jews normally applied to a prophet. And a letter would come from Paul, and, and he'd read it, and they would say, This is scripture. And they began to recognize that, that this was to be received on a level with the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, Peter says that in his little book in Second Peter. He says, you know how hard Paul is to understand. He said people twist the scriptures like they do Paul's writings and the other scriptures. In other words, they're saying these letters that we receive from the apostle Paul are more than just, uh, just personal letters. They are on a level with the prophetic writings of old. They, they, they are scripture. See? And they have to be accepted with that authority. So uh, the church in Ephesus would get a letter from Paul and somebody from Ephesus would go up to Colossae and he'd say, hey, we just got a letter from Paul too. You want to compare notes? Yeah, they'd get their letters together and a fellow from Ephesus would take the letter from Colossae back and they'd copy it off. And uh, pretty soon you had copies of copies circulating all over the, the Roman world. So I mentioned, uh, you know, by the first of the second century, we know that copies of John's gospel were circulating in North Africa. So that uh, these letters were going everywhere. And before long, there were thousands of copies of the New Testament. And the church would look, look at these writings and compare them, and they would, uh, they would correct the, the manuscripts that they had on the basis of older, better manuscripts. And, and pretty soon there were, there were a set of letters, 27 of them, that fell out that were, that were clearly apostolic, prophetic writings that the church accepted. That sort of thing wasn't decided by a council in the 3rd century or at any other time in history, it was as the church received these letters and received who these men, and knew who these men were, that they were accepted as scripture, and believed, and considered to be on a par with the Old Testament. And that's how the Bible came to be. That's how we received the 27 books in the New Testament. By the first century, we had the writings of of the church fathers, the next generation, from the apostles, the men that the apostles discipled we have most of, of their writings that are of any importance and they quote scripture from the New Testament and then they quote scripture from the Old Testament and they never questioned the, what we call the New Testament they, they by the first century by the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century they were treating the New Testament as though it was it was gospel it was the old it was same as the Old Testament see. now the, the question often rises uh, how do we know that what, what we have today is an accurate representation of what the apostles wrote? Okay, so, so the early church had, had the writings of the apostles and prophets, but we live thousands of years away. How do we know that what we have here is a, a reliable uh, translation? You know, there's the Revised Standard Version, there's the New American Standard, there's the New International Version, there's Phillips translations or paraphrases. How do we know? And errors have crept into the text, and there there are there are sects today that are based on on the idea that errors have crept into the text over the nineteen hundred years that the Bible has been transmitted from one generation to the next, and they have the pure version. Well, let me just give you two interesting facts, and I don't want to go to Second Timothy. Um, prior to nineteen forty seven. The oldest Hebrew manuscript that we had was about 10th century, A.D. Uh, take, for example, the, uh, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was written about 740, middle of the 8th century, B.C. The earliest manuscript that we had in the book of Isaiah was 1010 A.D., some scraps from, from the 900s. But the best manuscript, the only complete manuscript of Isaiah, was about 1010 A.D., about 1,700 years. Oh, my goodness, over 1,700 years, all sorts of errors are going to creep in, right? Because they, uh, they didn't have copy machines, uh, IBM's uh, medieval monks uh, producing manuscripts, nonetheless, you know, they didn't have that sort of thing. They, they copied everything out by hand. Oh, my goodness, hundreds of thousands of, of mistakes have crept in the text, right? Well, nobody knew we didn't have anything earlier than 1010 A.D., 1700 years away. Well, as you know, in 1947, a little Arab by the name of Abdul the, the Wolf was chunking rocks into a cave and he heard something break and he, he looked in one of these caves and he found a bunch of uh, clay cans like this and they and broke into them and, and discovered all the books of the Old Testament except the book of Esther. For some strange reason, they, they didn't have the book of Esther there. Maybe they haven't found it yet, I don't know. But they had all the other books. They were able to date these, uh, these manuscripts by the, by the type of lettering that they used. It's, a, it's an exact science. They know that styles of writing changed. And they were able to date these things. They found an Isaiah scroll, complete scroll of Isaiah, that they were able to date about 150 B.C. at the very latest. I mean, you know, it could be even older than that. 150 B.C. Alright, now here you have a, you have to understand, you have this enormous jump from 1010 AD to 150 BC. That's a thousand year, 1100 year gap. It, by the finding of this one manuscript, they made this huge jump back into history and they found a, a manuscript that was only 700 years old. And they thought, aha, now we'll see what mistakes have, have crept into the text. And they call it, scholars, pay, Paleographies, uh, paleographers and others, archaeologists and linguists together, and they looked, looked over these manuscripts. You know what they discovered? Basically no difference, whatever. Between the Hebrew text that we had in 1010 A.D. And, and the one that was found in 150 B.C., basically no difference. The only differences were some errors in spelling, or changes in spelling, actually, stylistic changes. Like our difference between the spelling of honor, H-O-N-O-R, and H-O-N-O-U-R, and that sort of thing. And a couple of uh, stylistic changes just in in the way they express themselves. But absolutely nothing of any consequence. Absolutely nothing. Miller Burroughs, who, uh, he's deceased now, but at one time he was the leading scholar in this field working with the Qumran text. He also was a translator of the Revised Standard Version. The Revised Standard Version Committee came out in 1946, I think it was, uh, with their version. And they had tampered somewhat with with the Hebrew text because they felt that the Greek text, the Greek translations of the Old Testament were better. So they had changed a few things. Miller Burroughs, after reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, said, I wish we hadn't changed anything because the Hebrew text that we have is far superior to any translations. It is extremely accurate. Not one change of any consequence. Same thing's true of the New Testament. We have entire manuscripts of the New Testament going back to the 3rd century. I've seen a couple of them. Incredible. You just, just read them and it's exactly what you'd find in a Greek text today, in a, in a critical Greek text. And we have one, one scrap, as I said, that goes back to the section of John 18. I said John 19 last week, but it was John 18. section of, of John that goes back to the early 2nd century, sometime between 117 and 120, right in there. And uh, no difference. Uh, there's something like 4,000 Greek manuscripts today that go way, 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 way back. And they, those can be compared. And, and we know that what, what we have today is basically what the apostles wrote. One man who's not at all a Christian, very liberal New Testament scholar, said if you took all of the disputed passages in the New Testament and put them in one place, they would amount to one one-thousandth of the Greek text. That's one-half of a page of a Greek New Testament, about that much. And he goes on to say not one of those, those uh, disputed passages has any bearing, whatever, on the theology of the New Testament. This guy isn't even a Christian. He's a radical New Testament scholar. And he's, he says we can trust it. That what we have, right here, is essentially what the apostles and prophets wrote. We don't have the original writings. I wish we did. Maybe they'll be found someday something signed with John's name or something. But we don't have that. What we have are copies of copies of copies, but we can be sure that the copies that we have are extremely accurate. So don't let anybody come knocking on your door and tell you we have an updated version of the Bible. church messed it up over the years. We have the reliable translation. Tell them they don't know what they're talking about. Because they don't. Now I want you to go to 2 Timothy with me and... Uh, thank goodness I have 45 minutes these days, so I'm safe. This reminds me of uh, the fraternity talks I used to give on the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, Second Timothy uh, is a book all about the Bible. This is Paul's swan song, as you know. He shortly thereafter was executed, probably within days or weeks after writing this book. And uh, he's passing on to Timothy the information that, that Timothy needs in order to maintain the ministry that Paul has given to him. Paul is uh, in prison in Rome in the Mamerton dungeon. Timothy is over in uh, Ephesus, uh, responsible for leadership of the church there. Uh, Paul says in verse 12 of chapter one, Second Timothy 1, For this reason, that is because he was appointed a preacher and an apostle of the, di- of the gospel, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit. Uh, The New International translates what I have entrusted to him, which makes it appear that it is Paul's salvation that's been entrusted. But actually, if you just take the phrase at face value, he says he's able to guard my deposit. So you don't know whether it's something that Paul has deposited with God or something that God has deposited with him. The uh, New International and the uh, New American Standard take the prior position. But for myself, I think it's the gospel because that's the context of this chapter. He's able to guard my deposit. What was entrusted to me, that is the gospel. Paul talks a lot about his gospel. It was given to him by God. And he says God's able to take care of it. And then down in verse 13, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. What's that? Well, that's the gospel. God deposited the gospel with Paul. Paul deposited it with Timothy. Now he says, guard through the Holy Spirit that good deposit. And then in chapter 2, Verse 1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. These entrust to the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The gospel is deposited with Paul. Paul deposits it with Timothy. And now Timothy deposits it to the, with the next generation of faithful men. And on and on the thing goes from generation to the next like, uh, like you pass on an Olympic torch. That's how the gospel came down to us. God gave the gospel to the apostles, the apostles gave it to the next generation, and they gave it to the next generation, and the next generation, and it came down to us. We Christians are not avant-garde in the sense that we're always waiting for some new revelation. We go back to the apostles and their writings. Now look at verse 14. Remind them of these things, that is, these faithful men. And solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Handling accurately the word of truth. The word is translated handling accurately means to, to cut straight to the, to the goal. Our word uh, ortho, orthopedics. An orthopedic surgeon is someone that straightens out your teeth. It comes from that word ortho. Cut straight. You Cut straight to the goal. What's the goal of Bible study? Well, it's, it's to produce godliness. It's to make us more righteous. Or make us more righteous. And, and, and Paul says to Timothy, look, instruct these faithful men when you pass the word on to them not to wrangle about words. Now, he's not talking about discussing the Quran. He's talking about discussing the Bible. He says don't fight about words. Don't get, in, get preoccupied with minutiae, which is what we as evangelicals are inclined to do. We fight over whether we ought to take a dispensational or a covenant approach to the, to the Bible and, you know, when in the world the rapture is going to occur and we've got all of our charts laid out and we fight among ourselves over those issues and Paul says, don't wrangle over words, cut straight to the goal. That's what will make you an approved workman. Well, what does it mean to cut straight to the goal? Verse 22, flee from youthful lusts. Well, I know this passage is used a lot with reference to sexual lusts, but if you look at the context, it has absolutely nothing whatever to do with sex. It has to do with immature passions. The the, the sort of uh, thing that young people are most prone to, and perhaps all of us to some extent, and that is to argue and to fight over words and to win, to dazzle with your intellect and your knowledge of Scripture. And, and Timothy apparently had that problem. a very bright young man. He'd been with the Apostle Paul, and he might. The temptation was there to, to word fight, to joust with people over the meaning of Scripture. We love that because we love to win. We want to put people down. We want to demonstrate that we have superior knowledge of Scripture or greater intellect. Paul says, "Don't do that. Flee youthful lust, this immature passion, to to win an argument and pursue after righteousness, not victory." But righteousness, that's the goal. That's how you cut straight to the goal. You use the scriptures to produce righteousness, faith, love, peace. With those who call on the Lord from a purified heart. See, the issue has to be settled in our heart. We have to put down the tendency to, to prove our point and dazzle others with our with our knowledge. We study the Bible in order to be more righteous, to be more faithful, to be more loving, to be more peaceful. That's the point of it all. But he says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. That's the saddest note that I hear in the church, the the quarrelsome spirit that's generated within the body of Christ because we fight over the meaning of words. So sad. The purpose of Scripture ought to be to unify, to bring peace, not divide us. And he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. But be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now, uh, read please, verse ten of chapter three—the one we just, uh, the passage we just just read. You followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions. Verse fourteen: You continue. In the things you have learned. In other words, you followed me, my teachings, you knew what I taught, now continue to do so. Continuing the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And the, the pronoun whom is plural there. It refers to Paul, I think, and, and, and the other apostles. Remember who you learned them from these, these apostles who were also prophets, who have divine authority who speak the word of God. Continue in them. Develop a habit of Bible study. That's really what he's saying. I don't know about you, but I every time uh, this season of the year comes around, I get a case of the slows. And uh, I hate to go to bed at night. And I, it's very hard to get up in the morning. And I just get lazy. And I find that the habit of of reading the Bible and meditate on it, and meditating on it is one of the first things to go. Paul says, Don't do that. Continue in it. Develop a habit. Make it habitual. Continue in the things that, that you've learned, knowing from whom you receive them. That's your salvation in this world. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you what happens to me when I stop reading the Bible. I start picking up the coloration of the world they're thinking. Doesn't take long. It just seeps into the nooks and crannies of your of your mind, and before long, you find yourself thinking just like the world. Um, I uh, Terry Clapp and I had breakfast last week, and we were talking about some of the more recent television ads. And there's one that's uh, the product itself. There's nothing wrong with product, it's fine product, <coughs> but it's the way it's presented, and uh, describes. It shows a very thinly clad lovely young lady running through the trees with this young man chasing her. And then she leaps off of a grassy slope into the water. And uh, any red-blood American man uh, looking at that, his mind will go on to what happens after she leaps in the water and he leaps in the water. And it dawned on me, and the same thing had struck Terry, that what they're selling is not the product but a lifestyle. There's a very subtle... um, identification with, you know, the idea is you you drink our product and this is the way life will be. You'll be free. You'll be like a wood nymph. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that's nonsense. Um, I, I'm convinced that, uh, in fact, I wrote a column on this for next week, that social historians someday will... Look at the decline and death of our culture, and say that television did it to us. Uh, I'm not going to campaign against against television, but I do think we need to censor the the uh, that thing and and curtail the amount of time that we spend in front of it. Because the problem is not the blatant evil. We have built-in sensors that will screen out the the really coarse, crass stuff. It's the stuff, the subtle stuff that gets under. That, unaware, that we're unaware of that really does us in. One of the things that, that concerns me most is that television tends to fantasize good and evil. And if you watch programs uh, perceptively, you'll, you'll notice that that evil, that good is always portrayed as dull and monotonous and dumb and evil is portrayed as full of charm and exciting uh, and in life, in real life, it's just the other way around. And then when we know that. <laughs> in real life, evil is the most monotonous, dull way to live. Life just begins to become more and more empty. And good is what satisfies us. But, but by fictionalizing good and evil, they just turn morality on its head. So now teenage sex is fun and games. Until in real life, you talk to two kids that are involved in a in a, a wrongful sexual relationship, and they'll tell you what's happening inside. Uh, adultery is a, is a barrel of laughs until you talk to the woman who's the victim of it and, and the children who, are, who you know, are raised without a father because of it. See, that's, that's, that's the horror of television. And perhaps most of the media is that it just turns morality on its head and we start believing the lie. We get fogged out. Uh, in one of the Narnian tales, Aslan tells uh, one of the children, Lucy, I think, that uh, when she she has three things to remember. And he says, when, "When you get into Narnia, the air is thick in Narnia, and you're inclined to forget. So keep reminding yourself of the three signs." And and every time I read that, I know exactly what Lewis is talking about. The, the, the world, in the in our world, the air gets thick, and we forget. That's why we need to spend time in the Word. And you know, I, I'm convinced. I'm writing a column on this now, so it's really fresh in my in my in my mind. I'm convinced that social historians may someday uh, report that our our culture died simply because of television. Because I think television. Uh, I'm not uh, campaigning against television, but I do think that we need to to censor and curtail our use of it because. Television is a very subtle medium, and things get through without our being aware of it. If something is really crass, and it's just crassly evil, we'll pick it up. Our moral sensors detect it, but one of the problems with with the tube is that the stuff kind of slips in, and it gets us while we aren't looking, and we find ourselves thinking like the world. Um, There's a, Terry Clapp and I were having breakfast this last week, and we were uh, commenting on a number of, of television advertisements that we've seen lately, one of which shows a, a lovely, thinly clad young lady uh, running through the woods, and there's a very handsome young man who is chasing her, and she leaps off the bank of a river into the water, you know. And the product is good. There's certainly nothing wrong with the product. But what occurred to both of us is that they're not selling the product. They're selling a lifestyle. Uh, if you drink our product... You're you're going to be a free spirit like this. You'll be a wood nymph. Uh, <laughs> you know, you you can run through the trees without any clothes on like these people do, and you can live free. And boy, it is so much fun! And wow, let's let's do it. And and your mind goes on to think of what happens after you leap into the water with this young lady, and so forth. One of the problems with television, and perhaps movies as well, is a tendency to fantasize, to fictionalize good and evil. Uh, good is always pictured as dull and monotonous and boring and, dull and dumb, and uh, evil is presented as charming and delightful and satisfying. And we begin to believe it after a while. And what happens is that our morality just gets turned upside down. Good is evil, and, and evil is good. But in real life, it isn't like that. See, teenage sex uh, is is portrayed on the in the media as something delightful, but you talk to some of these kids that have wrongful sexual relationships going on, and what's happening to their to the inner person, and just how they feel about things. They're no longer free, and they know it. All Scripture, he says, is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It it. It calls us on the carpet when we're wrong and reproves it. it. reproves us. It corrects our lives, our attitudes, our lifestyles. It trains us to do what's right and to know the difference between right and wrong. So we, as men and women of God, can be adequate, equipped for every good work. did you realize what he's saying? That reading the Bible, studying it, memorizing it, knowing it, living on it, will equip you for life. It will make you wholly adequate for anything. That's the purpose of it. I've seen Lee Trevino drive a golf ball 200 yards with a taped-up Dr. Pepper bottle, and that's pretty impressive. But when Trevino goes uh, out to play in the U.S. Open, he steps on the course with a full bag of clubs. Believe me, it's a different game. And I think that's what Paul is saying to us. We've got to be equipped for life. We've got to have a full bag and have all the clubs, all the equipment, everything that's necessary to live life. And I think what Paul is saying to us, if we are not students of Scripture, you and me, then we are spiritually immature and inadequate. I don't know how else to say it. That's what Paul is saying. And it's not enough merely to sit here and listen to someone else teach you the Word. All of us need to be students of Scripture, be devoted to it, to give ourselves to it in order to be approved to God. Let's pray. Forgive us, Father, for our our laziness of body and mind and our, uh, the ease with which we shrug off this instruction and go our own way and devote ourselves to books that, that may be good and may be helpful, but really do not teach us to be wise. We know that our great need is wisdom for this, for this world. Make us students of your word, diligent students. And men and women who take it seriously, take it at face value, believe in its authority, and not only accept the authority of Scripture intellectually, but are willing to put ourselves under its authority and submit to its rule in our lives. Help us to know that it's good profitable for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.